My name is Michael, and today I have the privilege of reading sacred scripture. Uh, this morning we celebrate anchored hope by drawing near to God. The finished work of Jesus Christ gives us concrete confidence to approach God's throne, drawing near to God's steadfast love for security and strength. Jesus is our great high priest who gives heavenly hope to our hearts. Please join me in reading Hebrews chapter 7, verses 22 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always, li since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Thank you, Michael. If you have your Bibles open, would you keep them open, please? Uh, and I'm glad I'm at a safe distance from Joelle now. She won't take my glasses off. But we do celebrate wiggles in worship. And if you've got uh, an itty-bitty near you, uh, then we celebrate any sort of movement. We're in this together, uh, and so let's, let's live and love like it. If you don't have a Bible, we have some. Callan can grab you and send them, send them over to you, or please use your phone. Uh, as we look at this uh, passage, we're going to jump deep mainly into the application portion of our passage. Well, we'll begin with a question. Where do you turn when times get tough? Uh, where do you go and look for strength in the midst of the storms of life and the struggles of living in a fallen world? The author of Hebrews is writing a pastoral letter to the early church, and we've discussed uh, that they have uh, are experiencing persecution, different problems that included imprisonment. That's what Hebrews 10 describes. For simply following Jesus and claiming the name of Christ as their primary identity. Now, their temptation, like many of us, was to go back to what was familiar what was comfortable, what seemed to turn the temperature down on their problems and their persecution. And so for the early church that this letter of Hebrews was sent to, that temptation was to return to Judaism. That's why this section focuses on Jesus being the great high priest. He's even greater than Melchizedek. The author wants to invite people into something greater that is of more security 
that gives us more strength, more stability than that which is familiar to us. When we get to chapter 12, he's going to describe a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Jesus is our king. And so the identification that we have, there may be a few people in here that are tempted to go when problems come, when struggles come, to go back to something you can control, uh, different religious activities, a a, a former habit from the past, different ways we isolate, uh, different ways we medicate to try to make it through the problems of our world. So we can identify with these temptations. But we are going to discuss the greatness of Jesus, the amazing stability and security that we have in our great high priest who has gone before us, an eternal high priest. Now, uh, I want to give you two pictures. I have such a privilege of walking with this congregation pastorally. It's a gift and an honor and to be led into people's lives uh, as we navigate things and to participate in our partnerships and mission in the city. It truly is a gift to me. And this week, as I was prayerfully uh, putting the final touches on what we're going to look at this morning from Hebrews, God just gave me two amazing pictures of people who have an anchored hope. I'm going to be general enough where you have no idea who these folks are, but the point is the lines, the the anchors that they helped me see. The first came from uh, this person who was really surprised by some family dysfunction really surprised by certain reactions of different people in their family. And as I was listening to this person, uh, you know, getting ready to pray for them, I feel really helpless a lot when people are going through stuff. I saw a picture of true anchored hope. And this person, out of desperation, started getting choked up talking about Ephesians 3. And they said, you know, This is extremely difficult, all this dysfunction, but I know that God can do immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine. And this person said, when I find myself in a double bind, I'm going to trust that God's going to double down on his faithfulness. I said, wow, you want to come preach for me this week? Because that's good. And then another person I got to walk with. This person is literally being persecuted for their faith in our city, standing for righteousness in an unrighteous environment. They're struggling. It'd be easy to tap out and to move on. And this person says, you know, Mitchell, I know God calls me to love him. But right now, loving God looks like total and complete trust in God. And I thought, wow, you want to come preach for me? That's powerful. These are members of our family who, like you and like I, are wrestling with difficulties in our families, the difficulties in our communities, difficulties in our workplace, wrestling with the difficulties of our world. And they give a picture of anchored hope. So I ask you, in struggling seasons and in difficult days, what anchors you? Where do you turn when, when times are tough? Do you go back to old familiar things? Do you look to the headlines of our world to try to find hope? Or do you embrace the, the headlines of, of heaven that truly gives hope 
to our hearts. Do you draw near to God? Do you draw near to Christians for strength? Or do you disengage and move into a place of isolation where medicating can seem easier than actually engaging the issues of your heart and your world? Do you respond to God's gracious invitation for intimacy and intimate relationship with him? Do you allow yourself to be Savior-saturated and Savior-dependent? Or do you believe the lie that you can do it on your own, that you can be self-reliant? You see, at the beginning of this section, the end of last week, right before chapter 7, uh, these verses is where we ended. You'll find them on the screen. Uh, be, uh, the, from chapter 6, um, we have this sure and steadfast hope, says the author of Hebrews, a hope for our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And we read that and we're like, yes, I want a sure and steadfast anchor for my soul. I want a hope, but all of this high priest and Melchizedek stuff, like what in the world does that mean? So we're going to unpack that a little bit today. And we're going to do so through the window of application of this section. And that's drawing near to God. But first, we do need a little bit of understanding because if you read through Hebrews 7, which I hope you did, we're just taking the end of the passage, you're going to see a whole lot of discussion about the high priests and Melchizedek. And I know there's a few of you in here that are like, hey, I've been doing my, my morning devotionals every week in Leviticus. I get this whole high priest stuff. But there's not many of you. There's a few of you that have memorized Genesis 14 and you understand Melchizedek. 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 Okay, I have trouble saying his name. Right? He's actually a pretty, I'm going to do a quick introduction of these two things. First, Melchizedek. He is mentioned two times in the Old Testament. One in Genesis chapter 14 and the other in Psalm 110. He's mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews. He's this mysterious mediator that after Abraham rescued Lot, his nephew who had been taken and captured by the kings of the land of Canaan, Abraham took his army. And if you read the passage, you're like, wow, Abraham was awesome. He had like trained fighting warriors that he just kind of called out of his ranks. I mean, this is like his family. He had trained fighting warriors. He's like, come on, we got to go rescue the nephew. And these guys were trained and ready to go. And they, de they defeated five different kings that had come together to take Lot. That's a tough guy, right? But when Melchizedek comes, he comes from this veiled place. He's, he's not recognized. Uh, uh, he just comes out of nowhere. Uh, he's not identified who he was and where he came from. But Abraham sees him as a mediator, a high priest figure. In Sabraham, Sabraham, <laughs> Abraham honors Melchizedek through putting before him a tithe, 10%. And this mysterious person goes back behind this veil of eternity and disappears. And we don't encounter Melchizedek again until Psalm 110. This is after the land has been settled after uh, the monarchy has been established, 
after David has become king of the monarchy, we're talking generations and generations, hundreds of years later, and this psalm is written, David says to my Lord, David is worshiping God, a higher authority than himself, even as king, and he is declared to have one that will come after him that is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. <laughs> and you're like, oh great, Melchizedek, there he is again. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you read chapter 7, Melchizedek's name tells us a lot of who he is. He's a king. He's a king of Salem, a king of Shalom. He's a king of righteousness. Melchizedek is a, the king of righteousness. That he is eternal. And he has a greater priesthood than all the high priests because he was called and appointed by God but lives forever. And Jesus, being declared the greatest high priest, is being uh, described as one greater than Melchizedek. And you say, okay, Mitchell, tell me about the high priest. I don't understand the high priest. Let me give you a little window. The high priest, after Abraham uh, had his family, all the, all the tribes that came from his offspring, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 kids. One of those kids' name was Levi. Levi was the line through which all of the priests came. And of all the priests, uh, Aaron was the high priest. And Aaron's offspring were the only ones, the high priests, that could go into the Holy of Holies. Now, here's what you need to understand. Separation is normal in the description of Scripture. Think about it in creation. God created separation. Separation between light and dark. Separation between the heavens and the earth. Separation between the lands and the sea. Separation between all the creatures and the squirmy things and the crown of creation. That is those created in the image of God. And that's Genesis 1 and 2. And when sin entered the world, separation came between humanity and all of creation. Work became difficult. It became cursed. Separation came between humanity and humanity, seen evidently in Genesis chapter 4, when uh, Abel killed his brother Cain, or Cain killed his brother Abel. Sorry. And then separation between God and humanity. So separation came and very clearly articulated in places like Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2, where the prophet says, it is your iniquities, your sin, that have separated you from God. And so when God wanted to be restored in his presence with his people, there needed to be separation. And so God's people wandered in the wilderness and he gave them a tabernacle. When they got to the land, he gave them a temple. And God dwelled with his people in the midst of the holies of holies. And there was a separation, a curtain. And only one person could cross that separation. Only one person could go into the Holy of Holies. That was the high priest. And Hebrews 9 reminds us that this high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies, could only pass through the separation when once a year, when all kinds of blood of goats and bulls and all the stuff had been shed and covered and all the rituals, there had to be blood everywhere for him to cross through into the holies of holies. And Jewish tradition says it was so dangerous, listen to this, that the high priest, not only did their garments have bells everywhere, but the high priest would have ropes tied around their ankles so that if something happened in the holies of holies, 
that if they sinned and died in the holy presence of God, no one had to go in and get them out and die also, but they would pull out their body by the rope. That's how serious this separation was, the, the veil. And so this is significant for us to understand because you read in places like Matthew 28 and Luke 26 that when Jesus died on the cross, when his blood was shed, that the veil of the temple, that which had separated the Holy of Holies from all creatures in creation, all God's people, it was ripped in two. And it wasn't ripped in two from the bottom as if some conspiracy happened. It was ripped in two from the top as if the father of his people said, there shall be no more separation between God and his people and the veil has been torn and this intimate invitation is extended. And you would hope that when God makes a way for two-way traffic to ensue, that there will be some kind of traffic jam, right? Unfortunately, we haven't responded as excitedly as we would like. So this designation of Jesus as the great high priest is significant. He's the one that has not only gone before us, but has made a way for us. And this argument in Hebrews, it extends from chapter six all the way to the end of chapter 10. And the centerpiece of the application is drawing near to God. It is taking advantage of being able to get into the intimate presence of Lord through the invitation of his grace. And, and just this is how the argument summarized at the end. Look on the screen with me. Uh, Hebrews 10, 19, we'll read a few verses. Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that is opened through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, that with, faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope that is without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Look at this line. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works and not neglect to meet together as some is in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This crazy invitation that compels God's people into, uh, to respond to God's intimacy by going into his presence, by drawing near, not disengaging, not, not isolating in despondency, but drawing near is both personal between you and God and corporate. In fact, you can probably diagnose the authenticity of your personal drawing near to God by looking at your corporate engagement, whether or not you've given up in meeting together. We need each other. And this is what we're going to talk about today. Now, look. We're in the midst of a very turbulent time uh, in our world. COVID remind us that nature, we don't necessarily have as much control on it as we want. In fact, even little bacteria can pop up in nature and it shuts down our whole world, all of our global economy. But now what we see is this uh, very discouraging picture of human nature, that there's still evil in the world and that war comes from Evil in hearts and innocence is robbed and destroyed, right? But it also reminds us that we have evil in our own hearts. And we need something greater than ourselves to truly have hope 
healing. And that's what we're going to look at really briefly through the promises of Jesus. In verse 23, we see that we can have a sure hope because Jesus is a permanent priest. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in their offices. Jesus, oh wait, I'm sorry, I skipped. Jesus is a guarantor of a better covenant. Look at verse 22. Jesus makes the guarantor of a better covenant. Now in chapter 8, we're going to see the unpacking of Jeremiah 31 and the promise of the new covenant, but Jesus guarantees this better covenant, this relationship. I was teaching confirmation class before this, and I said, anybody know what the word covenant means? And this guy raised his hand and he goes, it's a big word we hear in church, but we don't know what it means. It's a relationship that God sets up with man and humanity and guarantees by his words. It's a relationship that God makes with his people that isn't based on your performance. You don't have to apply for it. You don't have to continue to perform for it. You don't have to be perfect for it because Jesus, he performs so that you can be accepted. And for Jesus to be a guarantor of that covenant, it's like a third party signing. If you're trying to buy something and you need a co-signer because your credit isn't good enough, you need somebody that has good credit, that's a guarantor. Jesus is saying anything that we do in our relationship that fails to meet the mark, that we fail to meet the standard, that we sin, anything that we do, he takes it. And he does that because in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, he became sin so that he could give you the righteousness of God. His record became yours. And so the covenant relationship that God has with you, this, uh, this concrete unmovable relationship, even when you let go, you know that he guarantees it and God's got you. And we can be sure of that because the second thing here, and I'm sorry, I skipped this, went straight to this. I'm just excited. He's a priest forever. He's a permanent priest. There is no more need for us to confess to a priest. There is no more need for us to make sacrifices for our sins. There's no more need for an altar to be built. There's no more need in Israel to rebuild the temple. And any theology that is pushing you to rebuild the temple and reestablish the altar so that we rehab sacrifice, reestablish sacrificial system, they don't understand covenant relationship. That is dangerous dispensationalism. God's covenant faithfulness is based on his finished work. He's a priest that lives forever and lives forever. He's permanent. We have solid ground to stand on in the storms of life. It's stable. It's unchanging. It's unshakable, to use the language of Hebrews. He's a permanent priest. And Jesus saves to the utmost, is what it says in verse 25. Look at this. Consequently, he's able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him. Drawing near is what started this whole conversation in chapter four, where the author compels us to approach the throne of grace with confidence, to draw near. And this argument goes all the way through chapter 10 that we just read, drawing near to God and to one another because the day of judgment is drawing near to us. We draw near to the Lord and we know that he saves us to the utmost. Jesus saves us completely. You know, have you ever seen someone rescued from drowning. If you've seen someone rescued from drowning, they've been saved from the water, you notice something. They stop struggling. They stop gasping for air and they start being grateful. 
You never see somebody rescued from drowning that gets onto land and gets in the company of paramedics and is still going, I can't breathe, I can't swim, somebody pull me from the water. They need to be saved from something else besides drowning if they keep doing that. People who are saved are secure. People who are saved are rescued. People who are saved completely are safe. They have a peace and they're anchored. And we know that we can be secure in that because we have an eternal high priest that verse 25 says, he lives forever to intercede for us. We don't have to work in our salvation to have salvation. We have one who is working on our behalf. Jesus forever lives to intercede for us. When you fail, he gives forgiveness. When you are struggling in sanctification, he gives strength through his spirit. Hebrews 10, 14 says that he has perfected for all times those who are being made holy. In Christ, positionally, we are righteous. Even if in our practice, we are working to be holy. We are holy in God, living as holy ones, even when our habits aren't as holy as we would like. By the power of the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of our flesh. By the power of His Spirit, we seek to live holy, but we are forever secure in our sanctification because Jesus forever lives to intercede for us. We know this because the, wor- the wrath of God is satisfied. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, verse 26, like his high priest that offers sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of those of the people. He did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law points in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later in the law, points to a son who's been made perfect forever. You see, Jesus has already offered the perfect sacrifice. Jesus has already offered the finished work of the cross. We don't live as victims. We live in victory. We don't live in fear. We live in faith. And that sounds great from up front but it is really messy in relationship. And I'm convinced that that's why this argument that the author's doing to get us to draw near to God, that the climax of that argument is that we do not grow weary in meeting together, that we continue to live in community because I constantly need you to take my eyes off of the struggles of this world and remind me when we're in a double bind, God will give us, God's giving an opportunity to double down on his faithfulness. I need you and you need me to remind each other that when we're going through struggles, the currency of our love for God is total trust. We need each other to draw near. We need strength. And we love how our congregation is growing. We love that people are connecting and re-engaging. But we are going to lament if we miss the opportunity to draw near to the Lord by drawing near to one another. 
the way that we're really going to connect with the covenant promises of God is to understand not only that we have a primary identity in Christ, but he gives us a primary community of the family of God. That is how we know the promises of God are true even when it seems like we cannot make it through. Friends, we must live together in community. I have this tremendous illustration that I'm not going to give, but except to say this. Individually, when nuclear war breaks out in our families, our finances, or in our world, we know that if we get hit with a bomb, we're going straight to heaven in Christ. The promises of God are true. We literally have nothing to fear. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Individually. Corporately, when nuclear bombs go off in our lives, a cancer diagnosis, finances, betrayal, job loss, loss of life, we have to have the people of God around us, the strength of God's community. So we celebrate baptism. Unbelievable. Little Joel has made it through this service. We've got a couple more songs to sing, but we're in it with y'all, and we're in it with each other. We need each other. So as Callan comes up, we're going to sing uh, to respond to, to God's um, word. Let's pray together. And ask for God's spirit. Lord, we thank you that we can draw near to you. We don't need to disengage. We don't need to live in despondency. We don't need to medicate and isolate. We can trust you. And we can live freely with one another. I pray, Lord God, uh, that you would fill us with your spirit. And that you would help us, Lord, more and more to live from the victory we have in you the secure and anchored steadfast hope of one who's gone before us into heavenly place, holy of holies so that we can have access to our God. Lord, we love you. And I pray for our friends in this room this morning, some of which don't know you as Lord and Savior, all of whom are really, really wrestling, living in a fallen world. I pray those areas of anxiety, those places of fear, unanswered questions. I pray they'd be an arena where you show your faithfulness and you give the certainty of your power and your promise in Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. All God's people said, amen.